This is an adaptation from Psalm 13. Long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. Why? I carry so much trouble. I live with so much pain. And where are you? Look at me, God. Answer me. Why do you forget me? Take a minute. Think about that. Does that reflect anything that goes on in your life? Have any of you ever uh, been there before where you may feel like God may not be particularly interested in what you may be going through at any given time? It might be surprising for some of us here that uh, the, the, what Don just read for us was taken right out of the pages of Scripture and that we see in the Scriptures that the writers of the Scriptures reveal and express some of the most raw human emotion that we can ever see. Sometimes we think that the writers of Scriptures, you know, were these superhuman, uber-spiritual human beings who, like, never doubted God, never, you know, got discouraged at all, and, and it's like, you know, God is good all the time, you know. doesn't matter that I'm being mauled by lions right now. God is good all the time. But as a matter of fact, they express some real human emotion, which really makes sense because the writers of the Scriptures were human beings with human emotions. And I think that one of the things that we can learn as we read the Scriptures and read the Bible is that God is actually a big God and that He can take a little venting every now and then when we are at our wits' ends. And as a matter of fact, the Scriptures even encourage that. That God desires and wants us to be honest with Him about how we feel when we're at our wits' end. That it's okay to cry to Him from the depths of our confusion and our grief and our pain. Today we're starting a new series that we're calling When God Doesn't Make Sense. And I'm guessing that all of us may have been there before. When God doesn't make sense? Perhaps, uh, I know many of us were there in January of 2008 in the 2007 NFC playoffs when Brett Favre threw his last pass as a Green Bay Packer and it was an interception for the New York Giants and set him up for the game-winning field goal and we're sitting there going, God, this doesn't make any sense. They were supposed to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, Some of us may have been in that position uh, on Monday night if we were watching the presidential debate 
We're like, God, this doesn't make any sense. How did we get here? But for those of us who may have lived a, a little while, we know that there are actually more profound and poignant moments where God doesn't make any sense. We have a good friend, and this friend has a good girlfriend whose son was the young 15-year-old boy who died at O'Donnell Park in Milwaukee when the slab of concrete fell on him unexplicably, unexplainably. And it would be so easy in a situation like that to say, as a parent, God, this does not make any sense, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right now, my wife is spending time with her good friend from college, Karen. Karen has had more than her fair share of grief in her life. Married later in life, they wanted to have kids right away, but all they experienced was a succession of setbacks and miscarriages. And then cancer. And now she's in the later stages of aggressive lymphoma. And she probably won't live to her 50th birthday. It seems, it's at times like these when God seems distant, unresponsive, even apathetic and uncaring about what we might be going through. We may cry out for his help and his attention, but it seems as if there's no one on the other line, or if there is, we've been put on like perpetual hold, almost like a child who's trying to get the attention of his parent, but he's busy watching the game and he can't be distracted at the moment. But if we try to figure out what God is like by only looking at our circumstances, we're, we're going to get confused. We're going to be spiritually uh, disoriented because our circumstances aren't always going to make sense to us. Even to some of the biblical authors, things didn't make sense to them. And so to adequately and accurately understand what God is like, a little bit of what He's like, we were never intended to look only at our circumstances, but at how God has chosen to reveal Himself. Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like, if you want to get to know someone, okay, you have to reveal a little bit of your, they have to reveal a little bit of, of themselves to you, okay? Now, if you want to get to know, if I want you to get to know me, I have to reveal a little bit of myself to you. I could stand up here on stage, and if I'm a good enough actor, I could, I could portray any kind of persona that I would like. If I want to go on social media, I can, I can create any kind of identity that I would like. But for, it, for you to really know me, really get to know me, I have to choose to reveal a little bit of myself to you, what I'm like, who I am. And that's exactly the way it is for God as well. And for those of us who follow this man, Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus was the ultimate revelation of what God is really like. He was, in, in essence, the most concrete and tangible and physical expression of what God was like. Which is, even if you don't go to church or consider yourself a follower of this man, Jesus Christ, that is really good news for you. Because, you know, for some of you here, you may, you know, have had some, you know, various experiences with church and people from church, Christians before. And, 
And, you know, it's, I know it's possible to, to meet people who, you know, might be a really good Christian, but could be a really lousy human being, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but for those of you who are here or just checking out church, Jesus was this person who he hung out with the wrong kind of people all the time. And, and people who were far, far from God, very irreligious, loved to be with Jesus. And you know what? He loved to be with them. In fact, the rap on him was that he was always hanging out with the wrong crowd. And if, if Jesus was living here today, and he was to be consistent with what he was like in the first century, it's probably more possible that Jesus would be hanging out at the Brazen Head Pub than he would be here in a church gathering. Well, maybe not now, because I don't think Brazen Head Pub is open right now. But, but, and, but so that's who Jesus hung around with. But he also had his group of followers, his group of friends at the time. And, and even for them, even to them, Jesus didn't always make sense. So if you're here today, and there are times when God seems distant, or AWOL, or out to lunch, don't worry too much. Because there were times when Jesus' own friends and followers thought that he was being curiously absent or distant. And we're going to look at one of those uh, narratives this morning. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John is a friend of Jesus. You'll find this if you want to grab one of your red Bibles underneath your chairs here. You'll find it on page 760. The book of John is one of the four uh, accounts of Jesus' life, one of the four kind of biographies of Jesus' life. And let me explain the, the, the situation to you. This is getting near the end of Jesus' public ministry. He's kind of been on tour now for three years. He is no longer the new kid on the block. He has done some amazing things. He's healed some people. He's cast out demons. His friends and followers, they've been around. They're, they they live, listen to his teachings on who he is and how to live. And so they are entrenched. They are like part of the committed. And within this group of followers, there is a family. A family of three siblings. There's two sisters, Martha and Mary. And then there's a brother named Lazarus. And in this story, we haven't been given the specifics at all, but Lazarus you know, has gotten sick, and he eventually dies. Verse 1 says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and and her sister Martha. Verse 3, skipping verse. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love. Okay, so Jesus seems to have this kind of special relationship with Lazarus. And you would think, this is, this is Jesus' friend. This is his homie, okay? This is, Jesus would be like, hey, let's go and help our pal Lazarus get better. Okay? But he doesn't do that. He makes some sort of cryptic utterance about this sickness not actually ending in death, but that there's some greater purpose behind it. And then, this is very odd, okay? He doesn't do anything. Jesus doesn't move. He stays put for another two days. He, ha- he has the ability to do something about it. He's within walking distance of Lazarus. Lazarus, he, you know, he could heal him if he wanted to, but he doesn't 
do anything. He stays put. If we read verse 6, it says this, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Have you ever been there before? Where you could like really use a cameo appearance from Jesus? Just, Jesus, could you just like show up and heal my mother or save my marriage or get me a job? That would be wonderful. And he doesn't seem to do anything. And that is exactly what happens in this situation. Jesus does not show up in time. And despite his cryptic prediction that this sickness will not end in death, it does indeed end in death. And Lazarus does die. You know, the EKG goes, you know. They take Lazarus down to the morgue, and eventually they bury him. And if you are one of Jesus' sisters, it's only at this time, after he's dead, that Jesus then decides to go and visit Lazarus. Like, nice timing, Jesus. Like, if you would have been here a few days ago, you could have saved him. Which is essentially what Lazarus' sister says to Jesus right when he arrives. Read verse 21. It says this, Lord, Martha, Martha goes out to me, Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Translation, where were you, Jesus? <laughs> where were you when we really needed you? Okay? I have uh, a friend in a class that I'm taking. I talked with him and his wife this week, and, and, and they tell a story about when their, their son was born. He was born prematurely, and, and he was in the NICU uh, for his first few nights, days of life. And they were with another couple who also had their child born prematurely. And in their first night, they are both in the NICU, and their son lived, and the other son died. And if you were in that situation, you, it would be so easy to just cry out and say, Where were you, Jesus? You could have prevented this from happening. In fact, you did prevent this from happening in the very next crib. And that's exactly where Martha is at this point. Where were you, Jesus? There are some things in this story that I think if we read it to the end, while not completely and totally offering satisfactory answers may give us some principles that we can take home with us when it seems like God is distant. To pick up the story, in verses 23 through 27, Jesus says this, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the, in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now Jesus makes some astounding statements in these verses. He says, whoever believes in me will never die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What does Jesus mean by that? <laughs> Last I checked, 
the mortality rate of the human race still hovered somewhere around 100%. Okay? Even if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, whoever believes in me will never die, he has to mean something than what you and I would mean when we say, if you believe in Jesus, you will never die. And it must have something to, to do with what he says right before that. He says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. So Jesus seems to be alluding to the fact that there is more than one level of existence. There's more than one kind or quality of life. From what he says here, it's possible to be dead physically and yet still very much alive. Let's go on. The other sister, Mary, then comes out to meet Jesus, and they have a similar conversation. And then Jesus seems at that moment to be overcome with emotion. He just got done talking with Martha, and now he's, he's talking with his grieving sister who's in pain because her only brother has passed away prematurely. And he looks around and sees everyone weeping. And it says that Jesus, in verse 33, that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit. Verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we read the two most profound words you're going to read in your New Testament together. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now remember, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have come to the conclusion that Jesus is the most complete and true revelation of what God is like. He portrays and displays God's character and His personality perfectly. Jesus shows us what God would do and how He would behave if we could see Him, touch Him, and perceive Him with our senses. And here we see Jesus enter into this tragic scene, the death of one of His friends, and He is deeply moved and he weeps. What might that tell us about God? What might that reveal to us about how God may be reacting when we're in pain, when we're in grief, and when we're at the end of our rope, and we may be asking, God, where are you? Jesus enters into this situation and he feels the full emotional weight of it all. And he's just overcome and he weeps. And perhaps I would submit to some of you that even though in your pain, in your suffering, it may seem like God might be absent, but perhaps, perhaps he is more present than you may ever imagine. It doesn't stop there. Verses 38 through 41, we kind of read the conclusion of this whole thing. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, Martha's always the practical one. <laughs> She's the sister of the dead man. By this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, 
I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, this may seem like a little bit of a Halloween story. (laughs) A little, little bit early. You know, this is pretty far-fetched. I mean, people don't really come back to life like that, do they? Right? I mean, we live in the 21st century. We know this doesn't happen. We're a lot smarter than people who lived back in the 1st century, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. I have a friend who travels to China quite often. And on one of his trips, he was there, and the lady who was kind of his personal tour guide got a chance to tell, her, tell him her story. And when he first heard it, he didn't know what quite to make of it. But the uh, other people there, just, they agreed with it. They corroborated with, the, with what she was saying. See, she's a cardiologist. And uh, she lives in one of these huge high-rise buildings there in China that they find all over the place. And one day, her neighbor approached her, neighbor lady, and she said, um, can I talk to you for a minute? And the lady said, sure. The cardiologist said, sure. She said, um, I'm not quite sure how to say this, but I've come to know the living God. And I am wondering if you are at all interested in that. The cardiologist looked at her and she said, not only am I not interested, but I'm a Communist Party member. And if you bring this up again, you're going to be in big trouble. The lady said, I'm so sorry. She went back to her apartment. The next week, the cardiologist had a massive heart attack. Massive heart attack. Died. EKG flatlined. You know, body took on room temperature. They put her, put her downstairs, shipped her downstairs to the morgue. And there she laid. And her husband came in from working in the fields, and they told him the news. And so he went to the hospital morgue to pay his last respects. And while he was there, she woke up. She came too. And he kind of freaked out, you know, like he would. They called the doctors, and the doctors came around, gathered around her, took her vitals, kept her for observation, and eventually discharged her after a few days. She went home. She went over and pounded on the door of her neighbor lady, and the lady answered her. She said, I'm so sorry. I hope I haven't done anything wrong. She says, Who is your God? And the lady says, well, what happened? She says, a week ago, I died. And I went to this very dark place. And I heard a voice. And the voice said, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. And I said, who are you? And the voice said, I am the God of your neighbor. And so this woman had a chance to explain to her who Jesus Christ is and led her to believing faith. Now this lady is the cardiologist doctor for all the vulnerable and poor Christians in that area of China. And, uh, and that's kind of what happens here. Jesus performs this extraordinary miracle so that people might come to know him better. Before they knew him as teacher and as healer, but now they come to know him as one who has the power over death itself. And it says in the very next verse that because of this miracle, many came to place their faith in Jesus. 
Now, what does this have to do with God seeming to be distant, to be AWOL, to be indifferent to what we might be going through? I think there are some things here that in the midst, in, in the midst of God not making sense, we can still cling to some principles that might be helpful for us to remember. Number one is this. In the midst of our pain and our grief and our confusion, God is still present. And even more than that, He feels our pain deeply and profoundly. This story illustrates beyond the shadow of a doubt that far from being uncaring and unconcerned, Jesus weeping shows that God is God who is with us in our grief and even allows Himself to be affected and impacted by what we are going through in our own pain. For reasons we don't completely understand, He may not alleviate our suffering, He may not take it away, He may not fix the situation, but He is not absent or unaffected by what we're going through. Second thing, God has purposes and plans to bring about something good even through our pain if we are willing to lean into those plans and purposes and choose to follow Him regardless. Verse 4 and 14 allude to the fact that Jesus intentionally stayed behind and allowed Lazarus to die so that greater things than even a healing might actually be accomplished. The sisters didn't know that at the time. Okay, They would not have been able to guess what was going to happen. But God actually had intentions and purposes behind a very negative and sad experience. Kim Munninger is one of our pastors on staff here. She's actually our children's pastor. And uh, interestingly enough, her sister is also a children's pastor at another church in Michigan. What many people don't know is that these two ladies' love and passion for kids is born out of incredible tragedy and pain. See, when they were young kids, just about 10 years old, their parents and their grandparents went out on a day trip and never came back again. And in a moment, their lives were changed together by a tragic car accident. And uh, in the aftermath, they went to go and live with an aunt and an uncle. And you know how they say how, how time, time heals all wounds? That's baloney. Okay? Time doesn't heal any wounds. And, and even as adults, they had to allow God to come into their life and speak to them and speak to their confusion and speak to their anguish and speak to their anger and speak to their pain. But He did. And He eventually healed them. He did what time alone couldn't do. And now, as a result of going through that tragedy, these two women are springs and sources of hope and healing for dozens and dozens and dozens of kids both here in Kettlebrook and at the church in Michigan. God has purposes and plans to bring about something good even through our pain if we are willing to lean into those plans and purposes and choose to follow Him regardless. Thirdly, lastly, in this narrative we catch a glimpse of a promise that Jesus makes of a time when He will bring an end to pain and grief and death. And that our inclusion in that future time is directly connected to how we respond to Him and His Son Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. 
Yes, we would like uh, our pain to be alleviated right now. We would like our suffering to be over right now, right here, right now. And Jesus doesn't do that. And, it, we, and when He doesn't do that, we think that He must be absent or uncaring or indifferent to what we're going through. When in a matter of fact, in reality, what He may be doing is patiently and persistently securing an eternity where those things like pain and suffering and cancer no longer will exist. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then he asked the question, do you believe this? Right now, my wife is with all of her college friends and they are with Karen probably for the last time. With stage 4 lymphoma, it's, it's metastasized to her colon as well. She probably won't be around at next year's reunion. And so they're saying goodbye to her for the last time. But even though they grieve... They do not grieve as people without hope because every single gal in this collective of college girlfriends is a follower of Jesus Christ. And they know that even though Karen may die, she will still be very, very much alive because of her faith in Jesus. And when the last drop of water is going over Niagara Falls, Karen will just be getting started in her new life with Christ. Jesus makes this promise that if anyone believes in me, their future, in this future reality, without pain, without suffering, without grief, will be secure. And he ends with this question, do you believe this? Let's pray. Father God, there are times when you feel distant. And if we only try to make sense of who you are by looking at our circumstances, we're going to get confused. We're going to be disoriented. But if we, if we look to Jesus, we gain a, a huge degree of clarity on the situation. And what this story shows us is, that God, that you are here. You're right alongside of us in the midst of our suffering and our struggles. And you even long to do something redemptive through our pain if we would simply lean into it and trust you and follow you in the midst of it. And you give this incredible promise of a day that is coming when you will bring about a day where things like pain and cancer and even death will be dealt with totally and completely. So we live in faith and hope of that day. And God, if there's, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know that, I pray that you would be kind and patient with them. Reveal yourself to them. Open up eyes and ears and hearts and minds so that they might begin to believe in a God who loves them regardless of what their circumstances might be telling them. 
pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.